Do you remember reading Wait Till Helen Comes by Mary Downing Hahn? I would regard it as a classic at this point, and I think a lot of the elements of the story are very classical horror tropes. So we have a creepy little kid, and we have a protagonist who no one believes Molly when she says that there is a ghost, and a lonely ghost who wants somebody to join her. That's J.A. White, author of Grave Books, the sequel to the popular Night Books. She's told so brilliantly, and she doesn't waste a single word, and she keeps everything moving, and she keeps the tone dreadful. And so I just feel like it is a blueprint for what this type of story should be, and it's not going anywhere. Chantelle Acevedo is the author of The Curse on Spectacle Key. She's been a fan of horror stories from a young age. I was reading rather inappropriately Stephen King and B.C. Andrews. And those were my introduction to horror as a 10-year-old. And I probably could have used a softer landing, like Wait Till Helen Comes. But it is genuinely scary. And even as an adult reading it, it really did unnerve me. When I was a kid, I was terrified of things like Wait Till Helen Comes. I would have never read my own book. Some writers say I write books for the child I used to be. That would be really sadistic of me to be writing for the kid I used to be. And that's Mary Downing Hahn, the queen of tween screams herself. She's the author of the now classic middle grade ghost story, Wait Till Helen Comes. I'm Nicole Wills. Today, we're getting into the Halloween spirit with our favorite graveyards and the ghosts that haunt them. It was during Mary's career as a public librarian that she developed a taste for writing ghost stories. I had to read a lot of kids' books because I hadn't really trained as a librarian. I was an English major. And I loved a lot of the ghost stories I read. And I thought, well, I would really love to write a ghost story. I wonder if I could do that. It seemed like it would be a great, fun experiment to see if the kid who used to be scared of her own shadow could actually write a scary ghost story. So at first, I couldn't think of what I would do. And then I visited this old church in the countryside that had been made into a family's home. The church was no longer used as a church. And they used the church building as a gallery. And they lived in an addition on the side. And it wasn't until I visited the church to look at the art gallery that I realized that if you bought a church, you got at absolutely no extra cost, a graveyard in your backyard. And I thought, oh my goodness, when I was a kid, I would never have gotten a good night's sleep if I'd known there was a graveyard right behind my house, full of dead people who might crawl in my window any night. The church and its graveyard would become the setting for Mary's story. And she would model her main character, 12-year-old Molly, after herself. Fearful, but smart and imaginative. A budding poet reading Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Dickinson. She'd be really scared of things too, and she would be known as I was to have an imagination. And everybody would say, well, there's no such thing as ghosts, it's your imagination, blah, blah, blah. And that's what we got, right? It's like something just called me to that churchyard on, on some weird level so that I could write this book. Molly, her 10-year-old brother Michael, and their not-so-friendly stepsister, 7-year-old Heather, are uprooted from their Baltimore City home to the eerie churchyard in the Maryland countryside. It's in the church's graveyard that they encounter the forgotten grave of a little girl named Helen. It speaks 
about death in ways that are emotionally complex, but also simple to grasp. And in a way that I think also is reflective of how young people first start thinking of death. And that's often in a really bodily sense, right? Like that, the element of body horror is probably the first thing we think about as little ones when we start to think about death, like what happens to us, right? Or, you know, you go to a funeral for the first time and you start to think about the physicality of it all. And there's a moment in the novel where Molly is in the graveyard and she starts really thinking about death deeply and decides that she can't stand another second there and says she needs to run from all the bones in that place and then realizes she can never run from the bones inside her own body. I backed away from Helen's grave. It was horrible to die. Horrible. Just to think of myself ending, being gone from the earth forever terrified me. As a shadow slanted across the tombstone, I wondered if it might not be better to live on as a ghost, at least some part of Helen's remain turning my back on the oak tree. I ran out of the graveyard, anxious to get away from the bones buried under my feet, but knowing I couldn't get away from the bones under my skin, no matter how fast I ran, they would always be there, always, even when I would no longer be alive to feel them. No matter what age it's written for, the motivating factor in the ghost story really is everyone's fear of death and fear of the unknown. What lies ahead of us, the last great mystery, and will we ever solve it? You know, is there something beyond the world of our senses that could actually exist? And so I think, obviously, fear is built into the story. If it's a ghost story, it's going to scare you, or it just hasn't done its job. But it also, I think, has to stimulate your imagination to think about the possibilities of life after death and do ghosts really exist? And if I met a ghost, what would it be like? And then if it resolves so that the ghost is finally at peace, then the reader can close the book and say, ah, no more Helen. She's taken care of. I don't have to worry about her being under my bed tonight. But it isn't just Helen the ghost, or her graveyard, or the terrifying concept of death that drives the story forward. The family dynamic is what creates the tension right from the beginning. And that may be what makes it so memorable, and so engaging, for young and adult readers alike. The thing that really stuck with me is that she has this realistic story of a family that's learning to get along as a new family that's been joined together. And she's using all these supernatural elements to kind of like augment the tension that's already there. And I think that's my favorite type of supernatural story where you have this realistic problem and the things that are happening that are out of the ordinary are just making things even worse. So even if you take away those supernatural elements, you still have a really interesting family drama that can exist without it. Jean, Molly and Michael's mother, and Dave, Heather's father, have only been married six months when we meet them. Molly and Michael are not Heather's biggest fans, and Heather is definitely not theirs. I asked Mary why she chose to write about a blended family. It gave me the best opportunity for having one child in the family who doesn't really belong in the family. Her father 
is her father, but she's not the daughter of the other kid's mother. And so this sets up uh, isolation of Heather on one part and unites Molly and Michael against her because they see her father take her part time and time again. And they both know she's lying, even though Michael doesn't believe in the ghost element. But her father never seems to see that. He seems blind to anything wrong with Heather. So a divorced family just seemed like a natural for it because it, it even gave Helen a kind of a way into the story, how she could just zero in on the troubled member of the family and draw her even farther apart from the family to get her own way with her. So it was natural to have a remarried slightly dysfunctional family, getting more dysfunctional by the minute. <laughs> and that can be a challenging dynamic to write for children. At times, Mary had to keep herself in check. Sometimes I forget whom I'm writing for when I'm caught up in writing. When I really get into the book, it's almost like the story's telling itself. The characters come to life, they do their thing, you know, whatever it is. And sometimes I think, no, no, you're getting a little bit out of control. Maybe I better tone you down a little bit here. The amazing thing is how often adults misunderstand what children are capable of understanding and dealing with. Because many kids have the same problems that Molly and Michael and Heather have, only they don't have a ghost to make it worse. The familial conflict we see is rich and honest and difficult, but graspable. In a pivotal scene, Heather lies to Dave. Dave turns on Molly and Michael, accusing them of abandoning Heather at the old ruins where she goes to meet Helen. And Dave and Jean, they begin to turn on each other. Dave, please. Mom laid her hand down on his arm, trying to calm him down. Don't talk to Molly and Michael that way. There must be some misunderstanding. Dave turned from us to Mom. That's right, Jean. Take their side as usual. Brushing Mom's hand away, he led Heather down the steps, past Michael and me, and strode across the driveway toward the van. Without looking at us, Dave slammed the van door and gunned the motor. As he roared down the driveway, I saw Heather smile at us. Heather's smile isn't one of kindness. It's taunting. At moments like this, she feels like the antagonist of the story. But we sympathize with her. Early on in the book, we learn that Heather lost her mother in a fire. Heather only nearly survived it. And on top of that, she's living with a dark secret. She accidentally started the fire. It's Heather's pain that Helen is drawn to. It's her loneliness and anger and frustration that really brings Helen to her. Molly, for instance, would not have been able to call up Helen. She doesn't have the nature that Helen seeks in one of the companions for her unicorn-filled landscape. She wants someone like Heather, who's really afraid and alone and thinks that uh, if the all the truth was known about, her father would hate her and she would never be accepted anywhere. And so, of course, a ghost must feel that way, right? I mean, a ghost is the ultimate outsider. That fear of rejection or outsiderness is common to ghost stories. They play out a bit differently in Chantel's The Curse on Spectacle Key. We meet our protagonist, Frank, in Auburn, Alabama, enjoying his last day of school before the summer break. It's the first time in a long time that his parents, who convert spectacular and strange buildings into homes, are planning to stay in one place. And he couldn't be happier. 
He's finally letting himself make plans and friends with no threat of painful goodbyes in the immediate future. He's friendless Frank no more until his parents break the news that they're moving, this time to a lighthouse in the Florida Keys and for good. I feel like having moved back home to Miami after being away for a long time and in that process moving my 10-year-old daughter, I realized how disruptive that is for kids, leaving their friends behind, coming to a new place. And I think in those spaces of disruption, there are voids that are created. And in that void, you can either fill it with happiness and joy and, and safety, or it can be filled with something else. And so in the case of Wait Till Helen Comes for that family, that move becomes incredibly disruptive and a dark thing slips in. And for Frank, it's a little bit of both, right? It, there's a kind of darkness on this island. There's a curse on this island and he has to figure it out. But this move also is the final move and it allows him to heal a little bit. Like Molly's family, the Fernandez family is struggling with their move. Everything is going wrong on Spectacle Key. The lighthouse is in shambles. There are crab infestations. Even the toilets are flushing the wrong way. And now, Frank's parents are fighting too. What was difficult was maintaining the lovingness of the family in spite of the tension there. And so I have Frank ask early on, he asks his dad, are you all breaking up? Because a kid would start to think that, right, in, in the face of all of this tension. You know, we can talk about spooky things like ghosts and, you know, and, and all kinds of horror tropes. But what's really scary for kids can be losing your family and having your family change and break up. It's not an element of horror, but it certainly adds to the fear that Frank is feeling on this island. Frank meets two ghosts, the invisible and bothersome Snuffles, who's been causing chaos at the lighthouse, and Connie, a kind little girl in an old-timey dress. She might just be his first friend on Spectacle Key, but there's a problem. She can't remember her past, and only Frank can see her. They team up to figure out why Connie has appeared to Frank and get a little help from the mysterious mystic, Mama Z, along the way. Connie asks Mama Z, if she's invisible for the rest of her life, how will she be of use? And Mama Z says, oh, you don't have to be of use. What a thing to say. You only need to love and be loved. And I wrote that very early on in the story. And I feel like sometimes there's a lot of pressure for kids. Like, what's your passion? And what's your favorite thing to do? And we're always asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> it's so intense, you know. But when you're just a kid, you don't need to do any of that. You don't need to worry about any of that. You just need to love and be loved and be helpful if you can. Be helpful. And if you need help, ask for help. Like those are, they're just basic things. They're just basic things. And that's what I hope people take away from it. It's a tender moment, one that emboldens Frank to be as helpful as he can. He's not sure if Connie's a ghost yet, but he's determined to help her discover who she really is, why she's here now, and why no one else can see her. And he's using science to do it. So having him go through the scientific method really carefully in order to prove or disprove his thoughts about this girl was really important to me because it, it gave him a, a plan forward. And the whole time he's bumping up against all of these things are, are sort of failing on him because 
what he's dealing with here is not scientific so much as it is supernatural. And so he has to also come to terms with maybe I don't have all the answers and maybe science isn't always going to be the answer here. But he gives it a really good go and he really trusts in that process. Frank hopes to resolve some of his uncertainties about supernatural phenomena. Like most middle schoolers, he's getting acquainted with the scientific method, while giving us an education at the same time. Alex, the main character of J.A. White's Grave Books, is working his own kind of process as a budding scary story writer. Grave Books takes place more or less a year after Night Books concludes, and Alex and Yasmin have gone off to their own different lives. Alex is still writing, although he's having some difficulties with it. We last saw Alex escape a magical apartment. Now we meet him in his dreams, and he's pretty surprised to find the witch, Natasha, alive. And so are we. We were pretty sure she was a goner at the end of Night Books. Joined by her familiar, a dog named Simeon, They hold Alex hostage, and while he sleeps in the real world, he slaves away in a dream graveyard, writing new scary stories under Natasha and Simeon's orders. In grave books, the thing that I deal with a little bit, my own Achilles heel, is this not so much writer's block when you can't think of an idea, but when you have too many ideas and the indecisiveness that comes with having 14 different directions that a story can go into, or all these different ideas and having to pick all of one. So I wanted to have Alex navigate through that because I thought, definitely not the only one that has that problem. And I love the idea of budding young authors out there reading night books and grave books and maybe seeing themselves in Alex and going, oh yeah, that happens to me. Like Frank, Alex is teaching us his process, the writing process. Every horror story is about the fear of the unknown. And to me, that's what a blank page is. That's where all that stress and anxiety comes from. It's the fear of the unknown. What am I going to write? Is it going to be good? Is anybody going to want to read it? If I start writing this, will I know how it ends? Is there an ending? What's connecting the beginning and the end? So it's all the fear of the unknown. So I feel like there's this very intrinsic tie between horror and the writing process. Like you're bringing something into existence. It's also very solitary pursuit for the most part, where you're sitting alone in a dark room. That's usually where bad things happen in horror stories. Writers, young and old, crave approval, but they don't always seek it in the healthiest sources. Alex is grappling with this too. I do think that as a writer, you tend to crave the approval, not necessarily of the most healthy sources. Generally speaking, the people who are The most critical of you are those whose approval you seek the most, not the people who love you the best. But also, the thing about Natasha is, yes, she's, you know, evil and has tried to kill him, but she has also expressed the most interest in his writing. And so from that standpoint, she's hugely supportive She has given him what he desires most, which is an energetic audience, even if she wants his writing for not ideal reasons. J.A. White, along with Chantal and Mary, explore the truth about our greatest villains. They aren't entirely evil, however mean they may seem. Antagonists are shaped by their deepest wounds. 
Helen has suffered a traumatic loss, just like Heather. As for Miss Shiverton, the politicking villain of Spectacle Key, she's covering up her own haunting past. I wanted to have a figure, right, who is standing in the way of this family's settling in this place. And so it came in the shape of an actual antagonist, an actual person. Miss Shiverton is manipulative and she is charming and she's well regarded in the community and she lies. And I think if you've been around long enough, you've met people like this. If you've worked in enough places, you've worked with people like this. And so I have to say it was a bit therapeutic to write Miss Shiverton (laughs) in some ways. And ultimately, you know, whenever in real life you deal with someone like this, you don't have to scratch the surface too hard to realize that they're operating out of some pretty deep wounds. And that ends up being the case with Miss Shiverton as well. Miss Shiverton has had a hand in covering up Connie's past. She's even removed any account of what happened to her from books in the public library where Connie and Frank go to seek answers. It highlights the importance of cultural memory and of knowing and preserving history. It's about making sure that history, particularly dark histories, troubling histories, don't just get covered up and forgotten. When an injustice has happened, that doesn't get forgotten and covered up because it's easier, because it's embarrassing to someone. And I'm currently living in a state where people are, certain laws have been recently passed and people aren't allowed to talk about our history in classrooms. It's wild to me. And I think that it's maybe the, one of the worst things that could happen in education and in classrooms today is covering up histories that are tragic and sad and things that happened that were unjust and evil and to not talk about them because it's hard because it might make make someone feel bad is not a good excuse. As Connie and Frank work to unveil Connie's true identity, they learn that to break the curse of the island, they must speak the names of the lost children. The lost children were orphans living at an orphanage on Spectacle Key when they were left out in the storm by their would-be guardians. It was Miss Shiverton's ancestors who were responsible for their loss. And so speaking the name of these lost children is a way of recovering their stories. And it's on Frank because he's the only one who puts the story together. And so he has a little bit of a mission at the end, right? That story won't remain hidden, that these stories will be brought to light. One of those stories is Connie's, and Frank is able to speak her true name, Alice. And finally, she becomes visible to Frank's parents. His parents take the mission on as well as the keepers of the island. And it's their duty. It's their duty. And it's the way, it's how the other children in the story find peace. Chantel hopes the story will teach young readers to value history, whether their own or a larger cultural history. It's always been one of her biggest interests. The characters are grappling with history and the preservation of history. And so that's always at the forefront of my mind in my writing. It's almost like I begin with either a historical moment or something, a character that's thinking of a historical moment or is coming out of a particular moment in time. I've never not written that way. It's my palette is this idea of the past being important and that it 
plays out in our lives to this day and that we are currently living history. It's important for kids who are like me, who always loved history growing up, to continue to find these elements and stories. And, and maybe kids who aren't so fascinated by it, maybe they'll read a story like this and start thinking about the history of the places where they live and ask themselves, what are some stories that have been covered up or, or kept from them or are just waiting to be discovered by them? If it brings them to the library, great. If they get introduced to archives, even better. <laughs> Alex gets his happy ending too. Having long thought his mom had no interest in his stories, he finds out she's actually always been his most dedicated reader. She's been collecting his stories since before he ever thought to save them. His mom, at least, isn't so much not an ally of his writing. She's just a poor communicator of her feelings. And then, of course, the fact that she has all these stories serves a really, really important plot element as well, which was nice to tie those two things together. I think that I wanted to make sure that going forward, we kind of get the sense that Alex has these things in place where he is now not going to really need to be having these traumatic experiences with witches once a year in order to be a successful and happy person. And of course, there's Helen. She does find her peace, but not without a fight. Helen is luring Heather to the pond where she draws lonely children when Molly comes to her rescue. She ignores her own fears and dives into the pond and pulls out a nearly drowned Heather out of Helen's reach. Finally, Helen is reunited with her family in the afterlife. She was just like Heather after all. She too lost her mother in a fire and she too accidentally started it. But she's forgiven. And at last, Heather admits the guilt she's been carrying to Molly. Heather clung to me weeping. Don't tell daddy, Molly. Please don't tell daddy. Don't tell him it was me who made mommy die. He'll hate me. He'll hate me. Oh, Heather, Heather. Cradling her in my arms, I rocked her as if she were a baby. My own tears splashed down onto her dark head. It wasn't your fault, Heather. You were only three years old. Your father would never hate you. Never. You didn't mean it to happen. It's funny. Kids write to me sometimes about Wait Till Helen Comes. And I've had several kids write and say that their favorite part of the book was the reconciliation between the two sisters. Which surprised me because I thought they would say their favorite part was one of the ghost scenes. Because they liked the ghost scenes, they liked the scary part, but what they really loved was when they made up. This is when Molly and Heather are united as sisters for the first time. Heather sighed and turning over noisily. I'm glad you're my sister, Molly, she said, her voice slurry with sleep. Me too, Heather. I meant it. For the first time, she seemed like a real true sister instead of an enemy camping in her home, making me and everyone else miserable. Even with this kind of tender ending, it's understandable why some kids might shy away from spooky stories. Adults, on the other hand, might shy away for more complicated reasons. When I wrote the book, my editor at that time was James Cross Giblin at Clarion, a wonderful man who unfortunately died about five years ago now. But anyway, the first time he read Wait Till Howling Comes, he said, Mary, let me tell you the truth. People are going to love this book or they're going to hate it. I love it 
And I'm hoping that most of the people who read it will love it too. My takeaway from that, of course, was, they're going to hate it. I know it. And I was having breakfast with a bunch of librarians. And one of them asked me, what's your next book? And I said, oh, it's a ghost story called Wait Till Helen Comes. And this one librarian looked at me. It was like she drew back. Like I suddenly become a very suspect person. And she said, a ghost story. I don't read ghost stories. <laughs> when Mary wrote the book in 1986, books exploring the supernatural were a point of debate. And librarians like Mary were seeing them taken off of the shelves, sometimes by librarians who were happy to see them go. For a while, that was where all the censorship was on supernatural books. And Wait Till Helen Comes was the subject of many heated discussions. But now, of course, they've moved on to other subjects to vent their anger upon. But I'm still afraid that it's going to flare up again into the supernatural realm. And we're all going to be in trouble with two. Which is a shame. There's so much to be learned from stories, whether they feature ghosts or witches or monsters, even when they scare us. I think it helps kids learn to deal with their fears in a safe environment. And so I always think that it's more about defeating the darkness than the darkness itself. And my characters tend to use empathy, intelligence, creativity, all these sort of like positive things to defeat whatever the evil is. It's the lessons we learn in the face of darkness that make these stories so important to young readers. But Mary is still surprised to find just how much Wait Till Helen Comes impacted her readers, how it still impacts them in adulthood today. So often when the autographing starts, an adult will bring me this tattered copy and it's always Wait Till Helen Comes. It's never any other book. This was my favorite book when I was a child. And now that I'm a media specialist or a teacher, I read it to my kids every year and they love it just as much as I do. And I think, wow, that's really pretty neat. You know, the first time it happened, I thought it was just an aberration, but then it kept happening. So I autographed the book for them now that they're all grown up and, and thank them for loving the book and sharing it with their students because where would writers be without librarians to share books and teachers to share books with their kids? So it's very rewarding. So sometimes just once in a while, I wish it was a different book. <laughs> Mary says she always hoped she'd write a classic story, and she has. Maybe she didn't plan on becoming the queen of tween screams, but she's enjoying it anyway. Her newest book, What We Saw, is a thrilling murder mystery. It's telling that these ghosts and graveyards stay with us. They might cause us a bit of grief, but when we face them, we face ourselves, our fears, our histories. And in confronting them, we learn collaboration, problem solving, empathy, and companionship. As young readers, we identify with the sense of loneliness and family tension that arises in our darkest moments. We see ourselves in Alex and Frank and Molly, and understand that courage doesn't mean fearlessness. It means that even when our own inner monsters rear their heads, even when they're at their ugliest, we don't look away. It's in horror that we find whatever haunts our nightmares just might hold an important lesson. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll do some haunting of our own. Time 
tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins. Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Lisa DeSero, Julie Yader, Elba Luz, Lynn Polvino, Kristen Renz, and Catherine Teagan. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Nicole Wills. Thanks for listening.